0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. From the very first day of this project, two years ago now, Tom Riley was high on my list for people to interview. Little did I know I would end up working alongside him in the TED offices here in New York City during my TED residency. So this interview was relatively easy to put together. We just slipped into a conference room and hit record. Tom was the founder of Planet Out, the largest LGBT website and community certainly of the 1990s. Tom recounts for us the unique impact the web and online technology had on the LGBT community and prior to that remembers the early days of the Mac industry. But of course, Tom is best known today for his work right here at Ted where he is the Director of Community as well as the TED Fellows Program. So, towards the end, we'll get to hear how posting TED Talks online has transformed this organization. Please enjoy this conversation with Tom Riley. Tom Riley, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. I usually start these off by... um, Going into the background, like, what did you study in college, Did you when did you get into technology, that sort of thing. But with you, I want to start with an interesting one, which is how did you land a role in the sort of famous 80s movie, My Bodyguard, alongside people like uh, Matt Dillon?
1: Well, My Bodyguard, uh, which came out in 1980 and was directed by Tony Bill, uh, was a coming-of-age movie Uh one of the first ones that was very serious in its traumatic intent, And uh, I went to a high school called New Trier High School in Winnetka, Illinois, which is the northern suburbs of Chicago. And we had a reputation for minting a lot of actors. Um, people like Charlton Heston and Bruce Stern and Rock Hudson and uh, Penelope Milford and Anne Margaret none of whom most people have probably heard of, (laughs) and people like Virginia Madsen and then Adam Baldwin. And on this movie, this was Adam's Mm -hmm. very first role. They came and auditioned people at our high school and I told a lot of smart ass jokes and they asked me to come down for a call back. And I told more smart ass jokes and then they selected me. It was a lot of fun. So what are you, 15, 16? 16. Mm -hmm. Did you want to be an actor? Yes, actually. Uh, for part of my life, I did want to be an actor. Uh, you can imagine many parents don't think that that's a, secu- a secure uh, future career path. And uh, and I kind of transmuted my interest in acting into uh, comedy mm-hmm. and ended up doing satire later. So I'm going to follow a hunch here,
0: but I have a hunch that a lot of what your career became might have turned on... The Macintosh. So I wondered if you could tell me the story of, of, of you and your first Macintosh.
1: Well as a matter of fact, uh, that is 100% true. Uh, when I was in college, it was the uh, early 80s and it was not a very easy place or early uh, sorry let me do it one more time. When I was called <laughs> when I was in college uh, in the early 80s, it was not an easy time to be gay or openly gay. And I was raised Catholic and I was incredibly conflicted and I had all of this energy. And it's kind of like, where is there gonna be an outlet for this? So my freshman year, I went to Georgetown University in Washington DC and did very well. Uh, And one of my teachers encouraged me to transfer to more challenging um, literature program, but something else happened that was gonna change the course of my life forever. And that was in January of 1984, this very charismatic and handsome man named Steve Jobs introduced this thing called the Macintosh. And I went and bought the first issue of Macworld Magazine, even though I'd never seen this before. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard a little bit about it because a couple years ago, there were years earlier there was this thing called the Lisa, which was like a $10,000 Macintosh. Um, and I was really just intrigued by this person Steve Jobs is so magnetic and interesting. And also this computer just kind of really spoke to me. So I would say, um, you know, one day I went down, uh, down downtown Washington, D.C. into a computer reseller, and it was completely empty. I was like, where is everybody? And I walked around the corner, and there was a crowd of people obscuring something. and And I realized they were all looking at the Macintosh and I was equally enthralled and waited my turn to when I could sit down and touch it myself. And I used Paint and I drew a little drawing and I printed it on the ImageWriter, which was one of the first uh, full graphics dot matrix printers. And I held it up and I said, this looks just like this. And I believe it was a tree. And I said, I want to be part of this. I want to know the people whose signatures are etched on the inside of this case. This is the most important thing that I can possibly imagine. It's going to change the world, and I have to be part of this. So I would say, in my mind, 60% of the reason I transferred to Yale is because Yale was selling Macs at a discount through a a program called the Apple University uh, Consortium, established by Bud Colligan, who would later be CEO of Macromedia. And the idea was if you could add, addict people at uh, elite Ivy League colleges and Stanford to the Mac early, then they would go out into the workforce and demand Macintoshes, and that also worked. But I actually drove out early to Yale to be in the August allocation of computers because you had to wait instead of the September allocation, which is <laughs> really kind of nuts. And by this time, I was obsessed. I, in Chicago over the summer, I went and you know played with them again, and the people at the computer store were like, you're not going to buy anything. Um, and, you know, sure enough, I got my first Mac, and I was absolutely certain that this was the most important thing. And I was still wrestling with my sexuality and other issues. And um, and the school was in a very weird place. It was on strike, meaning that all the laborers and the people who worked in the kitchens and the maintenance people were on strike, and most of the teachers wouldn't cross the picket lines. So it was a very kind of difficult environment to transfer to. And also, if I'd only known, you know, people make their friends freshman year, so it was a little hard. Um, but I ended up uh, being obsessed uh, and learning everything there was to know. There were, at that time, it was possible to know everything there is to know about the Macintosh. It was possible, and I did for several years. Couple stories. Well, what, you
0: you you founded the um, the Yale Macintosh Users Group, which, by the way, I looked up and is still existing. <laughs> it still exists.
1: Yeah. Yes, it was actually. I would say that I was a co-founder. I would say the founder was Philip Rubin. Uh-huh. from. Uh, he was a, a researcher at Haskins Labs at Yale, and but I was one of the top like three, four, I would say four or five people, uh, and uh, but I started the newsletter because I was took. Journalism in high school, and I knew how to you know create that and it was literally using still using scissors and rubber cement because there was no desktop publishing software at the time and the newsletter is really good we have Philip actually saved them I actually have a copy of them still this was nineteen eighty four it was a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, and anyway, for whatever reason, I was more obsessed with the Mac than I was with school, so I dropped out of Yale and I did a little bit of traveling and then decided to like so many other people go to Silicon Valley to seek fame and fortune and I had 6 600 dollars uh a duffel bag a girl scout duffel bag for my sister and a rusty schwinn bicycle and uh the rest uh is history I mean that was the beginning of my career so uh you I, I believe you, you work at, it's, it's called Super Mac Technology.
0: Basically, you you get into the nascent Mac industry.
1: Correct. Like once I went, I took the bus down from my sister's house in San Francisco to try to see Apple. And they're like, sorry, we don't hire people without college degrees. Mm-hmm. But that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was much better suited to an entrepreneurial environment. And Super Mac, it was hilarious. We interviewed at Boston MacWorld with the CEO and the COO. And they're like, do you know the Mac? Are you smart? When can you start? <laughs> it was pretty much like that. And I, uh, this was a small company that sold hard drives, much faster hard drives than the Mac had had previously called SCSI hard drives. Um, and we sold 20 megabytes for $1,299, which is probably about you know 1800 and adjusted for inflation, which is crazy. And I started off in tech support and we would help people you know, people would say, well, my my hard drive doesn't turn on. And we're like, is it plugged in? And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess guess it does need to be plugged into the wall. But I had a good manner with people on the phone, and I actually thought it was really fun. I don't know if I would have thought it was fun for years and years. Uh, but after the calls died down from the East Coast, uh, I started working on these software products and these sort of uh, copy, writing copy for things. and um, And then the founder of the company kind of got in some kind of dispute with his college roommate who was the marketing manager. And I get this crazy phone call on a Sunday morning and I think you know I might have been a little hungover and um, my boss was saying, can you go to Lawrence Livermore Labs this afternoon? Someone needs to give a talk and I don't wanna go. Mm. And I was like, okay, no problem. And so I met him there. And uh, he pulled out this crumpled bunch of bills. And he's like, that should be enough. And I hope I want you to stay under my name for the Marriott points and the frequent flyer points. You could, <laughs> you could, you could do that at the time. And on the way to the airport, he drove to the airport, and, and he says, I guess well, this means, you're a marketing manager. And I said, well, then I want to raise. And so I negotiated that on the way to the airport, got on the plane, went to Livermore, got good reviews, and sort of started working in marketing and communications instead.
0: I, I have to wedge this in here somewhere, but... Um... In the, in the 80s, you're also sort of a, a Mac guru for for Robin Williams. Uh,
1: yes, I wouldn't over, you know, I'm always trying to be super accurate about and not exaggerate sure. about anything, but I, uh, as I worked at SuperMac, uh, I met Robin at this uh, event at Adobe done by my friend Russell Brown and... Uh, Graham Nash was there from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, a band from the 60s, and uh, Herbie Hancock, and it w- uh, the jazz musician. And it was so fun. But anyway, he, I just said to him, Do you, if you need any help, let me know. And so I kind of redid all their computers mm-hmm. at their house in um, San Francisco. And uh, I remember very distinctly bringing um, a quadra, which was this sort of flat Macintosh, to uh his son Zach and uh when he was like thirteen, and we're very close today and uh and I was lucky enough to get you know one of the highlights of my life was riffing and doing comedy with Robin, which I got to do a few times mm-hmm. and uh, it's one of the nicest people in the world, and obviously very sad what
0: I, I just thought that was an interesting anecdote because obviously he was a Mac guy,
1: <laughs> you know I just well, he's, it's actually more nuanced than that. He also was a gamer mm-hmm. and he had massive PCs in this sort of um part of his house that was pretty much reserved for him and he would play games online um I believe with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and other friends in LA and so that part was windows but mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. the you know during his other stuff it was all Mac so you
0: after the 80s later in the 80s you um Move on to a company um, called, uh, is this
1: Voyager? Uh, between between SuperMac and Voyager. There was a couple. There's another company called Farallon. Okay. And Farallon. Was that was, also Mech? It was, yeah. Farallon was also named, was sorry, Farallon was named after the islands just under the bridge, under the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, just outside of San Francisco Bay and their claim to fame is that you could do networking over twisted pair, Mm. Uh, you know, low cost networking for Macs over twisted pair, and everyone's like, it'll never work. And, you know, of course that's the basis of all networking uh, in uh, offices today, except if they have fiber optics. And we were experimenters, Uh, they also had a product that let you put sound into your Mac for the first time. Another product that let you do screen sharing, meaning the ability to control and collaborate with somebody else across a great distance over a modem. Uh, and the company grew very rapidly from the you know, when I joined. And I learned a ton mm. about uh, you know, the power of networks. Well, I wanted to
0: do a little bit on Voyager also because this has come up a lot recently. There's been several people in a row now that um, there was a, before the dot-com bubble, there was a mini bubble in CD-ROM technology and Voyager was one of the uh, pioneers in, in consumer CD-ROM stuff. So tell me a little bit yeah, about
1: that. I don't remember when, but um, it was like 87-ish. Bill Gates had this conference called the Microsoft CD-ROM Conference, which is the first time. Did th- Gary Kildall speak at that? I'm not sure. Okay. And uh, talking all about how CD-ROMs could, you know, the word multimedia was brand new. And people had to explain what did it mean, you know, like putting together audio and video and interactivity all in one uh, thing. And there was no internet, so it was all on disks that were the size of CDs, of course. And CD-ROMs, you know, Bill Gates said that a reference spec for Microsoft computers will have a CD-ROM drive on it. And then a friend of mine, Linda Stone uh, at Apple, uh, convinced John Scully to put CD-ROM drives in Macintoshes and so then the industry took off and of course there was no content at all at the beginning and uh, and it took a long time i mean bill gates said something at that that was really helpful which is that it takes 10 years for any new technology to become mainstream and i think it you know it really did i think i kind of feel like that conference was in 85 86 87 i'm not sure and then by around 90, uh, Voyager had made some incredibly amazing examples of what was possible. Uh, Voyager was this avant garde publisher in Santa Monica, California, founded by uh, four people, including Bob and Aline Stein, a couple, Jonathan Terrell, and William Becker. And the, uh, Terrell and Becker owned Janus Films and had a, quite a few independent films on. The rights to quite a few wonderful international films like, um, you know, Fellini and Bergman films. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Bob was this, you know, I always called him the Marxist visionary. But he was a super intellectual and he was inventing all kinds of new things which are now completely mainstream, like the notion of issuing a super high quality version of a film on a disc and adding supplements and commentaries and deleted scenes. That all came from Voyager, and they called it the Criterion Collection, and it still exists. And um, Bob's no longer involved, but uh, uh, Jonathan Becker, the son of Bill Becker, is running that these days. Um, And that was on Laserdisc, which were 12-inch discs. That could hold a whole movie because you couldn't fit one on a CD-ROM at the time. The compression wasn't, or even on one side. You Correct. Had to flip. So you'd have to flip <laughs> yeah. them. Uh, and but they were also like he did this first, um, you know, CD-ROM with Robert Winter, this music uh, professor at UCLA. Um, I, I think there was a Tchaikovsky one, there was a Beethoven one, and others. And they would teach you about the music as you were listening to it. Mm. And so it was like software on top of a conventional recording uh, and then there were he then he also uh, pioneered ebooks. I mean it's not like there was never any research about it, but we were the first to sell uh, mainstream ebooks and they were sold for the PowerBook. There was like a PowerBook 140. it was a Macintosh that had a trackball like a little billiard ball but smaller and you could um, it had it was the first Mac that had a really super duper screen. And Jurassic Park was the first title we did with Michael Crichton and weirdly uh, I was asked to demo that on stage at Macworld Expo which is the big Macintosh convention that was once or twice a year uh, with John Scully and um, and my job was to make John Scully look cool <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we, we you know we had some good jokes and uh, and it was fun I think it's uh, the biggest Apple keynote that I participated in and uh, so I can't overestimate how tectonic Voyager was in changing the rules of digital media and everything that they did on CD-ROM would eventually be done online. Right. Um, I only stayed six months for a number of reasons. Um, it Mostly because I realized that my home was really in San Francisco and so I moved back up, mm-hmm. uh, moved back up there. Um, but it, it was such an intense time and the rate of innovation and the rate of you know figuring out new syntax new rules new conventions for creating media uh was faster than i had ever experienced but that's interesting so you have that foundation of
0: the it changing into this new era by these experiences and these companies Yeah,
1: you know? i was extraordinarily fortunate in my career I, I wouldn't say that you know i'm uh in any way you know one of the top entrepreneurs and innovators or intellectuals in the field. But, you know, I had a couple of ideas. Um, but I was very fortunate to have some very strong intuitions. And one of them was the Mac was going to change everything. And then the second thing is, you know, the first online services were like CompuServe. And let's, we'll, let's, we'll go there in a second. Yeah, But yeah. Let, me, let me just say, so basically it, it was good graphical user interface, then networks, then graphical interface on networks, and I realized all of those things were technically important. And then I'd say that the the multimedia stuff and video, which I touched at multiple companies, all of that made complete sense to me as an evolutionary thing. And and then I kind of just pursued those instincts, and it worked out.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's do shift gears a bit and get into online stuff, and your personal experiences. I, I imagine going back again to the 80s. -hmm. So probably, what, CompuServe? Because Prodigy doesn't even come along until, like, 89. So what were your first experiences
1: with not the web, but online? Absolutely. My first experience online was a service called Delphi. Mm
0: -hmm. uh, No, that was Genie.
1: Uh, Genie was uh, General Electric. Delphi, I can't remember who the owner was. But it was just, like, text. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't a very good user interface. and the modem, by it's like 100,000 times slower than today's internet access, if you can imagine, 300 mm-hmm. bits per second and maybe even more, but many orders of magnitude slower. Uh, but it was enough to send text back and forth. And we hooked this modem up to the Mac and I was blown away by this notion of I would have this reach. And then I was like, okay, I've tried Delphi. Let's try CompuServe. And unfortunately, their interface was, you know, from hell, literally. And they had their, their their addresses were numbers with a comma in the middle of them. There couldn't be something more hostile than that. But here's how everything changed for me. Um, I was fury. I was just absolutely lonely as hell and still in the closet and really unhappy. And... I uh, found this gay and lesbian bulletin board on CompuServe and there was a guy named Deacon McCubbins uh, who was the sysop or system operator as it was called in the day. And I said, I'm gay and you know, I'm having a real struggle. And he was used to doing this every day for everybody, of course, but I, to me, he was the only person in the world who, he was the first openly gay person that I said, I'm gay too. Mm. I've said gay to lots of high school friends and, and others. Now,
0: can we say, did you do did you do this online? Was this an online interaction or was this in person?
1: Oh, 100% online. Right,
0: okay, that's what I, yeah.
1: No, 100% online. Uh, Joe Hutsko, who was the uh, advisor to John Scully, also came out this way. Um, and, you know, it, it was completely transformative because somebody said to me, you're going to be fine, read these books and articles, you know, let me know if i can help and that was the beginning of the end of the closet for me you know it still took a while but i realized it's fine i'm going to be fine there's i just have to meet other gay people and get to know them better and and um, i'm curious did you
0: did it feel maybe safer did the, the did being able to do it online maybe give you that extra little bit of security that that allowed it to happen
1: 100% i mean that's when i learned that the magic of the internet for gay people is that you can come out and still be in the closet. Mm. And what I mean by that is in your life, professionally, to your friends and family, you can not, not tell people, but online you can get a community of friends. And what happens, and the community of friends are openly gay. And what happens is as you interact with them, it's very normalizing. And you're like, wait a minute, they're out, they have jobs, they're not in trouble, they're doing fine, they have boyfriends or partners. And, uh, and then you become, you just kind of realize, wait a minute, I can do that too. And that, that realization would, would inspire 10 years of my career right. and 10 years of my life.
0: Well, before we get to that, either speaking from your own experience or in general, can you tell me what the impact of online was for the lgbt community in terms of finding each other or just evolving the community in general
1: well sure the the internet or pre-internet way before the i mean let's call it aol and macnet and delphi and mm-hmm. CompuServe and prodigy the kind of antecedents to yeah. the internet provided LGBT people, a place to meet people by them, like themselves, and to not be alone, and to find community, uh, and also to find information about, like, a lot of people didn't know how to have sex, you know? Right. A lot of people, uh, and then later, how to have safe sex, and, um, and you know, to become politically active, and to uh, become part of something bigger than themselves. Before the internet, the largest gay anything was like 50,000 people at the Human Rights uh, Campaign campaign Fund, which is what it was called at the time, or the NGLTF, or Out Magazine, you know, 50 to 100,000. After the internet, you could create a service with millions of people, and that's because of this phenomenon. Gay people uniquely needed this particular medium because it let them become part of the community without coming out initially. And then created this normalization process where they then did want to come out. And it became safer, especially for young people, and especially for people who lived in rural areas, and especially for older people, and especially for people who lived on like reservations and stuff where there was just no infrastructure whatsoever. And if it hadn't been for the internet, the gay community wouldn't be nearly as far along um, as it is around the world. I mean, we obviously have a long way to go, but because of this, thousands and millions of people are happier and healthier and saner. And I I was lucky enough to get to watch this happen. Mm -hmm.
0: And did you personally, um, find community online on, on things like CompuServe and later AOL. Like, did you you know join groups? You know, go to the chat rooms and things like that.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I started joining any online anything mm-hmm. that happened so I could get to know. And the first graphical user interface was not AOL. It was something called MacNet, right? Um, which AOL, well, which the company that became AOL produced for Apple. Uh, no, that's something else. That's eWorld.
0: That's eWorld. Okay.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. But the eWorld was, uh, an attempt for Apple to get in online services that was created by AOL. MacNet was funded by Mike Spindler, who was a uh, CEO of Apple. I'm pretty sure. Um, and it wasn't a gay service. It was just a service for everybody, mm-hmm. but it was uh, even before that, there was this thing called Apple Inc, which Apple used for its business, uh, amongst each other. And then I I had the idea of lobbying Apple to let all of their third-party companies also be on this service mm-hmm. and to put their manuals and data sheets and all this stuff. And they gave me an award for it. but It wasn't very sophisticated. All I said is like, your community doesn't stop at the walls of Apple. It's bigger and let's, mm-hmm. you know, make that bigger. So, um, yes. And the, era, and the time when I got the most involved was uh, on AOL. And there was a gay and lesbian community forum and it was run by... Michelle, um, she went by Quirk, her real last name. She didn't want people to know. Um, And it was great. It was exciting. You could go in there and talk to all different kinds of people and and say, whoa, lots going on. I want to be part of this. And it was absolutely helpful to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an analog of this, which is in real life, the physical Silicon Valley with people... Who were working as engineers and marketers and product designers and entrepreneurs, it was an incredibly gay friendly place, especially around Stanford, mm-hmm. which is in Palo Alto, California, right. which is south of San Francisco. Uh, Stanford had a very large gay infrastructure and had for some time, as many large universities did. And so I moved in, when I moved to Silicon Valley, I moved to Palo Alto, and my friends were all technologists. Some were engineers, some were designers, some were, you know, whatever. And that that was the final straw of helping me come out for good in 19— I moved there in 86. I think I ended up out to everybody in my life by 88. And uh, if I hadn't met those people who were from the tech world, who were physical people as opposed to people online, I I, I don't think I ever would have done that. So there's. There's a lot of reasons why tech is especially gay friendly, but don't have to go into them now.
0: Uh-huh. So, I, the obvious transition here now is um, tell me about uh, digital queers.
1: Great. So, there was a group in Silicon Valley called High Tech Gays, and it was founded when Silicon Valley was primarily defense contractors right. like FMC and Northrop mm-hmm. and others. And, you know, they used to manufacture tanks and stuff. And, San Jose, which is even farther south uh, from uh, Silicon Valley. And back then, you couldn't get a security clearance if you were gay Mm. because they thought you were a security risk because of this crazy, stupid idea that we were more subject to blackmail than straight people, which was not rational at all. It was homophobic. And so high-tech gays took on this mission of making it okay to get security clearances. And they were very successful. Basically, over five years or however long it took, they got it so basically gay people could work in defense contractors. So that was progress. However, there were some other stuff to do. There were two things. One was a non-discrimination policy at your company saying that you know you don't discriminate against blah, 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 and blah. Um, and most of those were just like, you know, nationality and age and race and stuff like that, but nothing about sexual orientation or gender identity. And um, and then the second thing, uh, Lotus Corporation in Boston, which made Lotus One Two Three, an early spreadsheet that was eventually eclipsed by Microsoft Excel. Um, they were the first in the country to create domestic partnership benefits, meaning that it you could. Uh, get health insurance and bereavement and leave and and hospital visitation, all these rights that are accorded to straight people automatically, you could get those by registering at their company Mm -hmm. and they were really avant-garde and a friend of mine, Brian Simmons was instrumental in doing that Um, so anyway there are two issues that were all of a sudden very urgent to me Mm -hmm. Uh, and I kind of got I would say this is around 93 Um, and I and I got really activated, and I was like, why don't we just do this, go get these things, both. And the, I'm kind of a not, a take no, you know, I don't take no for an answer as a rule. And I'm just a little bit more assertive about how do we negotiate our way through this thicket of whatever. And the groups at a lot of these companies had gone to their HR departments, and, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying that, Human resources exist to protect the company from its employees. Mm. It doesn't, some are exceptions here, you know, at at TED there's an exception I would say, but they're not there to rock the boat, to put something new in, to change something. And so I said, well, let's route around them like they're a blood clot, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would, you know, I started with mine because I thought um, that gotta walk the walk, right? And I just said, I'm gonna to talk to the CEO. And I said, you wanna attract and retain the best people, you want it to be uh, you know, equal, and you can't do that if you're telling people that this class of people get this and this class of people get that. And he's like, that makes total sense, make it so. And he would wave at the HR people and they would do it. And so I knew that, the, that this tactic was to go to the top. Mm. And so we did, we talked to people like John Scully at Apple and we talked to the heads of all kinds of, of companies and I and I felt like this is cool and Queer Nation um, was sort of an antecedent, it was sort of an offshoot of ACT UP. Queer Nation was to work on gay rights as opposed to HIV stuff it, with the same kind of in your face tactics and uh, ideas and I was involved with that in the 90s and it was thrilling, it was so exciting uh, and so digital Queers kind of came out of that and and I deliberately chose a massively in your face name and it was meant to first of all position us against high tech gays and second of all get people to talk and you know I would have gay guys come up to me in gay bars and be like that's unacceptable how can you use that word that word is so bad and I was like well the whole point of reappropriating queer you know and mm-hmm. I explained very patiently but out of that work with the companies we realized a couple of interesting things. One is that most people didn't know squat about online yet, and the gay people didn't know how that could be used to their advantage. Um, not just for personal reasons, but also for uh, political organizing, civil rights, et cetera. So we started to have trainings at um, the National, G- uh, National Gay and Lesbian Task Force's annual Creating Change conferences, which were basically lefty activists getting together to talk about stuff. And I would hold these classes, and we would teach people about, you know, what this stuff is. And AOL was wonderful. I had a friend there, Scully Petrie, who would drive down from Washington and bring us tons of discs, and we would, you know, teach people. Um, and then you so, so it's kind of like an improvisational organization. So the next bit, and this is the last, so I'll shut up. Uh, the next bit is that we um, we realized that these organizations had nothing. They had like old PCs that were handed down from their board. There was even at the NGLTF, they had a daisy wheel printer. And this is unimaginable to listeners, but it was, it was akin to like those old IBM Selectric uh, uh, typewriters. It was very slow, made beautiful type, but could only make type and totally obsolete by 19, you know, 1993. Certainly. Uh, And they didn't even have laptops. They didn't have legal software. They didn't have Microsoft Office. They didn't have Photoshop. They didn't have tech support. They didn't have anything. And then it came to me and saying, you know, I'm not a terrible fundraiser. And and so I went to them during this first Creating Change conference, and I said, people come to you all the time, don't they? And they say they're going to do some event, and it ends up being much more trouble for you than it's worth, and, you know, nothing good happens, and it was a complete waste of time. And they're like, how did you know? Mm-hmm. I, said, so he's, I said, so you don't have to believe me, but all I want you to do is approve the copy and show up. And it's the only thing you have to do. And so we came up with this idea that go to the Macworld trade show and get all the gay people in the industry to kind of like stone soup, like everyone, some people bring computers and some software and some expertise for tech support and some printers and all this stuff. And we would give it to them in this cool ceremony and we would also raise cash too. And we had no idea what would happen. I mean, we weren't sure how much money we would get, but so the night that we did this for the very first time was electric and magical and fabulous. We we knew that we needed lights. We knew that we needed microphones. We forgot to get a stage. So we stayed, we stood on crates um, uh-huh. and, and talked to people. My friend, Karen Wickery, um, uh, who was, um, you know, with me, with uh, digital digital queers, and we got. I think the, the only reason they came was because one of my friends who founded Quark, which made it popular desktop publishing software, named Tim Gill, who was very wealthy, uh, was going to come, and so they're like, okay, well, we we care about him because he's a major donor. We understand what that is. We don't understand these crazy people, and. So we built, honestly, we built a mountain about 15 feet high on a table, covered it with uh, uh, with tablecloths. And, you know, at some point we had this very fancy reveal. And if you could have seen the faces of the executives from the NJLTF, you would have just laughed. And, sorry, I'm going on and on, but there's a couple more things here that are interesting. Um, the uh, So... So I, then they realized that they should pay attention to us, which was really funny. And we, we ended up raising $75,000 for them of goods and services. And that was enough to, you know, redo everything, give everybody at the, at the organization modern computers, laptops, software, networking, support, everything. And, but the way it happened was really funny. They were like, okay, we have to have a board meeting and process about this. And so I said, could I just go into the board meeting for like two minutes? And they're like, well, I don't know. Then I was like, really, I think it'd be good. So I go in there and I said, hi, I'm Tom Riley. You guys don't know me. Um, But I think we've proved that we're serious people. And you're thinking about whether or not you're going to allow us to put this stuff in. And they said, do this. Let us put them in. Let us install all this stuff. And after a couple of weeks, if you want to call us and say, take it out, we'll put it back exactly how it was, exactly 100% the way it was, and we'll take pictures so we make sure it's perfect. We won't throw any of the old stuff away until this is. So how could they argue with that? It was pretty simple, and I think that they were, I think that they were sufficiently still kind of blown away by you know, what we did, and so they let us and it was a great success and we and the humorous thing is about like a week later they're called and they're like can we get ram upgrades (laughs) and so that was the point at which we knew we'd succeeded Uh and we went on to do this for p flag which is parents families and friends it was a family organization for gay people we went and did this for the victory fund which elects gay candidates for uh glad which uh, works on representation in the media and you know, dozens of other groups around the country. And so that was Digital Queers, from policies in Silicon Valley to changing the national tech infrastructure for gay people and teaching people how, why the Internet's important to gay people in between. It was, a, it was a tremendous ride, and it was so fun because I didn't know what I was doing. We were just literally, Karen and I were making it up as we went along, but, but it worked out really well.
0: Eventually folds into GLAAD, I believe.
1: Eventually, we, we folded into Glad. Yeah. What we didn't know that we could have learned from TEDx is a lot of people wanted to do chapters, uh-huh. but we were old-fashioned in our thinking and said we should hold all of this close. And so mm. there was cyber queers in New York City and stuff. And if we were smart, we would have let people take the whole idea of it and do it everywhere in the world. And that was a failing. And at some point, um, I needed to start the company and whatever. So we, we merged into Glad.
0: Well, at the risk of alighting over a lot of steps and a lot of history, take me into how Planet Out comes about, even where the idea comes from and and how you you first get me to the first launch on, on MSN. Sure.
1: So if digital queers was about time to get online, this is amazing new world, then Planet Out was now that you're online, where do you go to? Mm-hmm. And GLCF was really great, but it was text-based, and it was on AOL, and the web was just starting to happen. And I thought we could do something that reached millions of people with modern design and modern advertisers and go past that 100,000 that HRC was doing or that Out Magazine was doing, HRC being the human rights campaign. Um, and I thought we could get investment from major venture capitalists and corporations and individuals, and that we could be just basically uh, a Silicon Valley startup that just happened to be about helping the gay community. And it was early, mm. it was really early, and not just in the, are people comfortable doing something with gay people, even though that was really early, but it was also early in the technology. and. The web was incredibly slow. Most people were on modems. Almost nobody had high speed. Um, And, you know, publishing on AOL also had its limitations, and uh, their tools were, you know, designed internally, but we, you know, we made them work. Um, And we thought, and then what happened is I got a call from this woman at um, MSN. Uh, I believe her name was jody something um i'm quite sure it's jody i'll remember later um and she's like well we've read about you and would you like to do a gay thing on our new and -and up-and-coming service called msm
0: because msn is launched to compete with aol
1: yeah it was launched in Mm -hmm. summer of 95 Mm -hmm. and we said um well as a matter of fact we were we had already started working on this and so that seemed like a good way in. And there, let me let me just interrupt.
0: Was it, so there was an awareness at places like AOL that um, the gay community is a big part of the chat room phenomenon and things like that. So that's oh I, yeah okay.
1: And I think I think avid and disproportionate. Hmm. Um, and with Microsoft, they promised this financial model that would have been very very rewarding to us. That I thought great. And they also said. The other guy that's gotten in touch with us about this is this guy named Darren Nye, who lives in New Jersey. And he's a old Sysop moderator from system operator uh, from bulletin boards uh, or BBSs that were, they were standalone online places Mm -hmm. that you could dial into that was like one computer sitting somewhere. And so I said, well, let's just combine forces and why don't you come and, and, you know, do the community part of things. And, you know, MSN was this attempt to compete with AOL, but the internet was going boom, 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 grow, 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 grow. And so by the time it got to the MSN launch, they changed their mind about their financial model, and they gave us some money to compensate for the fact that we'd put all of this investment into it. Um, But we were on the Microsoft campus on Windows launch day when Bill Gates was running around with windows 95 mm-hmm. uh bill gates was running around with jay, Lena- jay leno, leno in a golf cart and um and you know the the rumor was that they turned off the network east of the mississippi so the west of mississippi would work mm-hmm. I, I that could be apocryphal mm-hmm. um but stuff like that's common at launches actually uh and so we ended up on msn but all of a sudden msn was not going to be uh lucrative we knew um you know, probably. So we started talking with AOL, with whom I already had a relationship. I already knew Steve Case from mm-hmm. uh before, just from the tech industry and stuff. Well,
0: and you're uh, somehow involved in that whole AOL Greenhouse initiative. That was later. Ted, Ted Leonsis.
1: That was later. But when we were trying to get a distribution deal on AOL, and then they started the Greenhouse, and then they put us into the Greenhouse, and Motley Fool was their biggest success. Right. I think we might have been another big, biggest success. There were a lot of not successful things, but it was very fun because it was the part of the green, it was a part of AOL where entrepreneurship was really encouraged. And it, it basically imagine a, a floor at a corporate office building filled with people who were there to support uh, entrepreneurs. And once again, I don't think all of us knew what we were doing. And the psychology of the entrepreneurs and the psychology of the people supporting really different. Um, but we did okay. Mm. We did okay. And, um, uh, and you know, having been part of the greenhouse is sort of, uh, you know, a calling card or a secret handshake today.
0: Yeah, I've, I've spoken to several people <laughs> that, that that's true for. Um, just so that we can, I can ground it in the in chronology here. So you launch on MSN August of 95, roughly, mm-hmm. um, and then I believe September of 96, so basically a year later, you launch on AOL and on the web.
1: That's correct, with an interim launch June of uh, of 96 on uh, for our um, film and video product, which was called, um, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. Um, I'll think of it in, in in one second. I'm just blanking, mm. but it's very near and dear to my heart. But we launched that at the New York film Fe- Gay and Lesbian Film Festival uh, and on modems, and the art was just too slow. It was really slow, but it was a good—Popcorn queue. Uh, sorry. Popcorn queue mm. sorry. And popcorn Q was a pet project because it was my dear friend Jenny Olson, a film historian and queer archivist uh, who curated that. And we were the first—we had— Hundreds of short clips in real player, which was a very early video playback technology from uh, way before QuickTime and YouTube and stuff.
0: Listeners, I'd uh, send you to the uh, Rob Glazer episode if you want to look that one up.
1: Exactly. so it was Rob Glazer's technology. and we, but we had hundreds of clips of gay and lesbian movies and things like a clip of Anita Bryant getting a cream pie thrown in her face by a gay activist. Mm-hmm. Very popular. Mm-hmm.
0: So I always ask this question, even if the site is still existent, even if you can look it up on, you know, the Wayback Machine or whatever. Day of the launch for the website. If I'm a user, what do I see? What is the product? Or is is there chat rooms? Is there articles? What 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 do I
1: see? So the day of the launch uh, in '96 on AOL and the web, we had news, community. Uh, including you know, chat rooms, um, a, a gay search engine, which was really more like a Yahoo than a mm. Google. It, so it, a directory. It was, it yeah. was an index yeah. uh, of, of sites. We had the um, Popcorn Q entertainment site, um, and then we had resources for particular communities like lesbians and gay people and transgender people. And it was uh, a great... And, and, and so we did a lot of stuff that was considered dumb from a business point of view, and maybe it was, but I uh, I don't think so based on what happened later. But we were the first uh, online site to put bisexual and transgender on the home page. Mm. This caused a lot of controversy and among users. No, not among users. Amongst our investors. Okay. And uh, and our sales. Because they were guide. okay
0: with gay and lesbian, but then if you go further, they're not okay.
1: The, the truth is, the investors weren't that worried about it. It was more that there was we had this self loathing guy who worked for us who said we're never going to be able to sell uh, advertising if these are there, and it was all about his stuff. And, and so, you know, and I said, you know, I promise. He, so he went around to some accounts in San Francisco and got them to say this to uh, another one of our executives. But after that all all those people cleared out. I said, nobody will ever mention this ever again. And nobody ever has, Mm -hmm. legitimately. And of course, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is that we depicted an extremely diverse group of people on the cover as representation. Uh, We had women, we had men, we had Latina, we had African-American, we had butch lesbians. uh, You know, just people could see themselves Mm. uh, more than they could before. And it was controversial also to depict, because then people are like, well, you didn't use this people or that yeah. people. But I think the intent was clear. Just a crazy anecdote from launch day. Uh, at like 6 in the morning, we get this call from our hosting partner. And back then, you had to actually buy your own servers. And our software would run on our own equipment. But you'd put it at a place called a co-location place, or colo. colo. Uh, and they would run it for you and keep it working. Well, one of the guys calls and says, we noticed it's all of a sudden the s- server crashed. It's three, three hours to opening. And and we, ca- we call them and it's like, yeah, there was that big fat cable that goes from that big box to that little pie shaped box. And it seemed to be loose. So I unplugged it and plugged it in again. <laughs> and he basically unplugged the hard, the hard drive mm-hmm. from our server and so from remote control to Texas, we had to reboot the whole server on the day of launch. And we were about two hours late, but we made it. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: as, Because obviously, as the web gets bigger, it's the website that becomes more important. Or maybe, maybe I shouldn't assume that. Was AOL still important for the comp- for the company for a long time? Or did it all go AOL
1: was important until people started getting high-speed internet. Okay. And then the internet was more so important.
0: So all through the 90s, AOL was still very important to Planet Out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so as Planet Out, as a company evolves, what is the most important component of what you provide? Is it the community or is it what we would say content and media?
1: Well... I think that our content was really good, especially our news. I hired these people who had been doing a, a, a sort of a public radio newscast, a gay and lesbian show, for a long time, and they were these crusty old people who' smoked a lot of cigarettes, so their voices were awesome. But I would say that the community was the number one thing. It was meeting each other. Eventually, we had personals um, and, uh, and you know, sort of anonymized email and uh, um and then lots and lots of interest groups um but the thing is is content commerce and community as steve case of aol f- famously said you know they go together they work together in a braid as opposed to you know there's only one thing but i would say of everything community is the most important especially for lgbt people
0: well because i i'm just sort of interested like you know um when i spoke to the f- one of the founders of i village and um, you know, GeoCities. It was like that they accidentally discovered how important community was, but it almost strikes me that, that you started out seeking the community. You you already knew from the beginning that that was a key component.
1: Well, I had that personal experience, you know, right, right away, showing me what happens when you interact with the community, even if you're still closeted. And that was the secret sauce of why it worked for LGBT people. And so yes, I would say that we went for community right away. Um, in the 90s
0: what is what is the moment or what is the key factor that allowed your audience to become self-sustaining? I know that like you you take over out.com where you absorb out.com members at some point but like what was the key factor that made planet out I don't know, we can we can say for our purposes like the most successful uh site in this niche in the 90s
1: well I think you can kind of say that intellectually and culturally and um, and you know achievement wise we were the most successful I'm not sure that we were the most successful financially Um, this is all during the internet insanity the bubble the very first bubble Um, but I'd like to think that uh, we made a difference and I have so many pieces of correspondence that show that we did Mm -hmm. uh uh, you know even to individuals um i I think we were successful also because we were a brand around which people could convene and organize and it felt very safe but modern you know like the advocate the paper news magazine had been around for 30 years and was Mm. incredibly great but it was more like a news magazine in the in the you know format of like a newsweek or a time and i feel like we did we did get right on an early basis um what what the medium was and and to use it well um we made tons of mistakes we probably did everything wrong that you could do wrong but we tried to you know pivot and learn from those and move on and get better but i, I think um, i think it was you know ultimately it was the fact we could collect millions of people and provide them something valuable which was an order of magnitude uh bigger than ever Mm -hmm. and we'd eventually get up to several million uh, people um and then we also sponsored a bunch of good you know worthy uh, things like the march on washington Mm -hmm. uh in the year 2000 and our yeah 2000 um and the other thing I think you know, I'm obviously very proud of the team, and many of them go- have gone on to do amazing things. By far the most celebrated is Megan Smith, who's the who was our CEO after me, and she is the Chief Technology Officer of the United States of America. Right. So that's not bad. But I also think I also think that we made a difference in Silicon Valley by witnessing, oh they're just like everybody else they're just a startup we're used to startups we understand startups and they're doing a gay thing and i think that we both normalized you know what it's like to to do gay stuff in silicon valley but we also i think we helped significantly educate these mostly white mostly straight uh investors and uh company people and modeled for them that we're just you know we're just gay executives so that we're just executives and and so I I I, we saw a lot of people evolve from their initial some people nervous and homophobic and uh, to becoming just you know totally collegial and fine Mm -hmm. you know one of the one of my favorite reactions um, (laughs) when I've said I'm gay is the other person saying immediately well I'm not (laughs) and i'm like okay (laughs) wasn't necessarily accusing (laughs) anything uh but i think we did change change the culture of silicon valley and um and maybe we just activated it maybe it was there all along i believe that uh
0: planet out became the first publicly traded gay oriented
1: media company at least but possibly you know absolutely it did um It was traded on the NASDAQ. It went public in 2003. And the call sign on uh, NASDAQ was LGBT, which Mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. I mean, between that, we went through a bloody um, bubble explosion. Sure. And we merged with our largest competitors to um, create one company because we were kicking each other uh, through advertising and stuff. We realized if we just worked together, it would be fine. But we did consolidate a lot of leading gay brands, including The Advocate, including mm-hmm. Out Magazine, mm-hmm. including Gay.com, etc. Mm-hmm. So let's um,
0: let's finish by having a discussion about TED. Mm-hmm. I know that there's other companies and other things you've been involved with, but um, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me your first your first experience at a TED conference.
1: So back in 19. 19- I think late 89 early 90 I got this brochure in the mail and it was I was first drawn to the fact that it was incredibly well designed because I care a lot about design and it was like salmon and green and silver with these varnishes and and it opened into a poster and on the poster it said Ted Ted 2 you know this is happening in Monterey California which is even farther south of San Francisco um and the speakers included people like Herbie Hancock, the jazz musician aforementioned, Marvin Minsky, the father of artificial intelligence, um, Bran Farron, a visual effects uh, designer for like altered states, and uh, the guy who put the US Constitution on display and has subsequently founded Applied Minds, uh, this skunkworks engineering project place. Uh, and Nicholas Negroponte from the Media Lab, and on and on and on. And Muriel Cooper from the um, sort of user interface uh, labs. I guess it, I guess it was New York Institute of Tech, NYT. I think, or the New York Telecommunications Project. I'm that's Red Burns. I'm sorry. I think she's from MIT. I think she's anyway. she's a Very prominent interface designer. And I read this, and I was like, God, this is a really, you know. Usually, I would throw that at the mail without looking at it. Mm -hmm. I said, this is really cool. And I asked my boss, can I go to this? And he said, yeah, sure. Can I come too? (laughs) And so I went to this conference in Monterey. There were about 350 people there. And the people were just amazing. They're from all kinds of the world. And and it's kind of self-selecting. People were drawn to this being certain kinds of people. And, you know, they're like, uh, Jaron Lanier was showing the first data glove which is the first public display of virtual reality. Um, DeGraf and Werman were showing digital puppets uh, and uh, and then Photoshop was shown for the first time mm. um, yeah. and Bill um, gate sorry uh, Bill Atkinson who is the father of Mac Paint uh, the Mac operating system mm. and many other achievements um, brought this 10000 thousand dollar digital camera because that's how much they cost at the time and they actually took some pictures of me and others that were the victims for the photoshop class and it was taught by tom and john Knoll, who are the creators of photoshop they've since been bought out by adobe but john Knoll is still visual effects supervisor at ilm industrial light and magic The visual effects firm you know he did star wars one two three and pirates of the caribbean one two three and et cetera et cetera um but it was like being in an intellectual amusement park, and the presentations were short, and uh, the people were so cool, and the exhibits were awesome, and it was navigable. It was of a certain size that just, it was great. And and so literally, my reaction is, I found my people. Mm. And in fact, there's video that exists here of me from 1990 saying, I found my people. It's, it's great, but that was exactly what I thought and then i kind of became a lifer and i've been to 26 years of ted's and i've probably been to 40 events mm-hmm. um never missed a ted mm-hmm. never missed a ted global mm-hmm. uh never missed the ted women i don't think maybe one it's possible no never missed a ted women and so i was a groupie i guess before i was an employee mm-hmm. and as i went on i became kind of a fixture in the community and and um and became really good friends with people that we would you know, meet there and then we'd see them outside of the conference. And I, in 95, randomly, I took on this other role at the conference, which was an accident. Uh, my friend Russell Brown from Adobe, who's the senior creative director there, and I would do these little movies called Tedzilla, and really that was his genius. Uh, we did it t- starting in 91 with, or no, sorry, 92, with the first version of Adobe Premiere, a video editing software, and we made these basically parodies of Godzilla movies with Richard Saul Wormann, the founder of Ted, as Godzilla, um, you know, like destroying the the city of Monterey and, uh, and other stuff. And then one day, we were up the night before, we were supposed to do our Tedzilla. Um, I was just cracking some jokes upstairs at the Monterey, sorry at the marriott hotel and and russell just kept laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing he's like you've got to do this tomorrow mm. and i was like oh, okay because um, we were on at the end of the whole show and his colleague lisa helped me with some overheads we did it with an overhead projector and so it was much funnier analog in a digital environment <laughs> analog slides are way funnier uh, and and I got up, and I did this bit, and people went crazy. They gave me a standing ovation, and Russell and I showed our movie. And, and then from there on, for about 10 years, I did this satirical wrap-up. And it was a ton of work it, to do it, you know, ever-growing expectations from the audience and ever-growing bigger team to make it. Uh-huh. And it was fun, like this great late-night collaboration kind of thing. And... So what, what changed is when I started working for TED, first I had corporate partnerships, then I founded this program called the TED Fellows Program. Uh, I couldn't do both at the same time, so I stopped. And part of me wishes you know, I could do it, but to do it well, you really have to go to all the sessions, mm. and, uh, and then you have these late nights uh, getting ready. So I would have to sort of not do anything Fellows- one year if i did it again you can't
0: do it jay leno style and have someone write it all out for you and you're just the
1: performer that's not as fun yeah that's not as fun uh although i did have a two-person writing team with Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. and basically our idea was can we make each other laugh and you know it's like a writer's room and then we would do that but you know probably the most current uh example of this satire would be jj abrams you've seen his talk on TED.com about the mystery box. Mm-hmm. And we borrowed the mystery box from, he was in his boxer shorts and we, we borrowed the mystery, the mystery box and he was like, no problem, you can have it, it's fine. Just bring it back. And one of our team is this incredibly talented artist and we found a box that was about the same size and she did all the artwork. So it was indistinguishable, mm. you could not tell. And so one of my patented techniques for satire was to do something on the stage that the audience thinks is horrifying, but is not actually what they think is happening, Mm -hmm. but they, you know, you're faking them out. Um, An earlier example had been uh, Dale Chihuly, the glass artist had these giant glass sculptures sitting on the stage and they looked to me like candy dishes. So we went and got 30 pounds of M&Ms and put a microphone behind the candy dish I asked his permission. He's like, oh, they're indestructible. Just go for it. And so I came out and I was like, well, I just want to put some candy for all the people who are here. And that sound, we said, turn it up really, really loud. People were horrifying. They were gasping. And it was hilarious. It was great. Anyway, back to uh, JJ Abrams. So we took these, somebody had presented about puffins. So we took this ketchup and mustard squeeze bottles like you found in a diner, and we took out all the stuffing and stuck in the mustard and the ketchup, and and so I started doing this thing about the puffins, but the box was below me and it didn't say anything about the box yet, and then I, I you know I kind of accidentally squeezed one in and then shot all this mustard and squeezed the other and all this. Um, uh, ketchup all over it and then I spilled this huge thing of water all of it and then eventually I tripped and I fell and I crushed the whole box <laughs> people were dying it was, <laughs> it was awesome so, so it was a lot of fun to do this because uh, you know very transgressive I, I, I want to close with two more Ted, Ted questions
0: for our purposes uh, you know internet history um, Ted has been so much a part of the last 10 years with the online videos Mm -hmm. um i'm curious to know how that idea came about Mm -hmm. especially from the angle of surely that was controversial (laughs) giving away these Mm -hmm. talks which used to be you had to pay and show up to, to get it so tell me the story of putting the talks online how did that come about and and was it controversial and and
1: that sort of stuff so in 2006, uh, Ted tried this crazy experiment. We'd been charging thousands of dollars for tickets to our conference, and people would come and pay that and get this exclusive information. And we would send them DVDs of what happened, but beyond that, you know, nobody really knew about Ted. And Chris hired a woman named June Cohen uh, as a consultant to try to do a Ted TV show. And we. You know, we made these little prototypes and proposals and sent them to people like PBS and the BBC and uh, Discover and other companies. And they came back and said, Well, this is too intellectual for us. And we're mm. like, But you're PBS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and they were like, Can we cut this in pieces? Can we make it shorter? Can we do da-da-da-da? And we were like, No. And at the same time, Internet video was nascent, and YouTube had just come out. The year before, right. Yeah. And we were uh, we're like, well, maybe we should just try to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I believe it was in June of 2006, I think, but I'm not absolutely positive. Um, June and Chris put six talks on the side of our website that was made to be a conference brochure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was Al Gore, Majora Carter, Ken Robinson, um, uh, and others. I can't remember. Maybe Um, Hans Rowling. Hans Rosling. Hans Rosling. uh, Majora. uh, David Pogue. And David Pogue, right. Right. Tony Robbins, right. Yeah. Yeah. So we were like, I don't know, maybe we'll get like 5,000 video views or 10,000 video views, and people went crazy. Mm -hmm. And... It was the right time, it was the right place, it was the right content, and people had already, had always wondered what, what happened at TED. Do you have any sense of how the discovery happened? How,
0: it, we would now say it went viral, but how did people discover that all of a sudden TED videos are out there?
1: Everybody wrote about it. So, okay. like all the tech, yeah. techy kind of press, like yeah. wired.com, yeah. Um, and a lot of blogs, and, and uh, boing boing, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Sure. And, by the way, it was damn controversial. We had lots of people saying, well, I'm not going to come to your conference if you're giving it away. exactly. And we were like, we are going to lose all of our revenue, maybe. But the instinct was that it actually would be good. And what happened is, in the year following, the demand for the conference went up by at least five times. Wow. Maybe ten times. So there's this great... um, quotation by John Perry Barlow, who was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, founder of the Internet um, uh, Frontier Foundation, and uh, noted internet intellectual that he wrote in Wired magazine, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. And he said, the more you give content away, the more people want to be present at its creation. Mm. And rock concerts are a perfect example of that, although Music isn't always given away for free, um, but people were like it just fed demand now people are like, "Oh, I want to be there when this happens mm-hmm. and And so we were lucky, we were very lucky, so all of a sudden, Ted went from the sleepy little conference for rich white dudes with uh vests um to this worldwide phenomenon, and we've been on this roller coaster ride for the last ten years, yeah, and luckily, I joined right. Like, right before the videos opened, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. So,
0: I believe that the, the TED Fellows program mm-hmm. is your baby. Mm-hmm. So, tell me why you, wanted to, why you
1: wanted to start that program. Well, I'd grown up in an NGO household. My father ran an NGO, uh, and he was also on the board. He was on the selection committees for various different international fellowships, like the Bosch, the Bosch Foundation. Which is a German foundation encouraging, you know, American-German exchange, and I was also very aware of what was going on at Aspen Institute, the World Economic Forum, uh, you know, Open Society, uh, George Soros, and there were some great, you know, oh, and uh, Acumen Fellows and Ashoka and Echoing Green. There are all these wonderful fellowship programs, many of whom were monocultures. They were about Social entrepreneurs only, or whatever. And some were more eclectic. Um, But I figured we had an issue at TED, which is we had a lot of rich white guys from Palo Alto, you know, who are the core of our audience. And we love them, they're part of it. But there's a lot of voices missing from TED at the time. And we didn't have enough people of color. We didn't have enough people who were LGBT. We didn't have enough people who were. From the global South, and from Eastern Europe, and from the Middle East, uh, there's lots of people uh, who weren't there. And then, most Im- most importantly, young people couldn't afford seventy five hundred, well, seventy five hundred, now, eighty five hundred. Nobody can afford that when you're under thirty five, and a lot right. of people can't afford it right. if you're over. Right. Right. Um, at the same time, the and so so anyway, that the the premise was these people would contribute Im- immensely to the community. By having different voices and having them engage, and the converse was, I thought we could do a ton for these people. I thought we could teach them all kinds of skills, like giving TED talks, letting them actually give a TED talk and maybe gets online, coming to the conference, meeting each other, um, you know, building all these skills and and opportunities that might rain down on them from, you know, funders or investors or you know other professors or whatever and and but I wanted it to be super eclectic I wanted it to be from every possible discipline all over the arts all over science you know entrepreneurship NGO has human rights people uh, musicians performers everything and the idea was to be like a college class you don't want all quants and you don't want all jocks and you don't want all um, theater people you want to mix because the that's what's interesting. Um and what we were saying is let's take people in the first half of their careers, like twenty-one to forty-five-ish. They've done something amazing, amazing breakthrough thing, and they have the potential to do a lot more and we think we can help them, you know, slingshot them mm-hmm. forward in their career. And at the same time, the secret of the program is character. Other fellowship programs care a lot about character too, but I we're obsessed with, are they a good person? Are they a kind person? How cynical are they? You know, some cynicism is fine, but, you know, not, if that's your only worldview. Um, how, um, uh, you know, and, and how do they, how might they interact? And so the most important genetic trait for which we select is, collaboration. And we're really looking for people who work well in a group and who might be interested in doing stuff across disciplines. Um and so achievement plus character is the secret sauce. There's a lot more to it, but that's, you know, in a, in the end. And we get thousands of applications every year and we have we choose 20 people. Mm-hmm. So it's very competitive. And the right people just kind of like jump off the application to you, a page to you because that you're looking at them and you're saying, Totally our kind of person. And we have an elaborate process. um, But the, you know, if you'd asked me before we started the Fellows Program, what's going to be the biggest benefit to the Fellows? um, I would have said coming to TED and giving a TED talk. Mm. Um, But that isn't it at all. We have surveys of every single class, and we always ask them what's the most valuable part. The secret sauce of the Fellows Program is each other. What people are there is they meet other people who are like themselves. They don't feel like freaks or outcasts as they do in a lot of their scientific or artistic fields. They don't feel alone. They get intellectually replenished, uh, and emotionally replenished. And that's just the beginning. Beyond that, they start doing real meaningful stuff with each other. And even as we speak, there's fellows visiting fellows all over the world, staying in each other's places. And, you know, though we have only 400 mm-hmm. from 90 countries over the past seven years, I think they become a force uh, at TED, a force for good. And that it might not seem like there's any leverage in 400 people, but the truth is they all serve others. Mm-hmm. And if you add it all up, It comes out to millions of people so I'm I'm just I love being able to help people I love being able to mentor them and it's even better when they mentor themselves each other and uh, and so I don't know I'd, I'd say that the that's the fellows program in a nutshell and it's going to evolve substantially in the next couple of years
0: You know, I have to say just personally, only having been here for three weeks, but that was one of the first things that stood out to me is seeing fellows come through Mm -hmm. and realizing that this is not a one-and-off thing, that this is a community that you guys try very hard to cultivate and keep together.
1: As a matter of fact, we don't have any alumni. We don't believe in that word. Alumni is a word that pushes the older people away. We only have fellows. There's sub-naming, but... uh, We've been engaged, you know, just today somebody came over who we've been engaged with for five years, somebody else two years, yesterday five years, and we do stay involved with them. And that's the smart thing to do. There are other fellowship programs, amazingly, usually older ones, that barely communicate with people after the first stage of their program. And we uh, they're communicating with each other every day. And we're supplementing that. But see, the magic is we don't need to cause that interaction to happen. They cause it with each other.
0: At the risk of wrapping this up with something cheesy, it occurs to me that the through line in your career has always been community. You know what I mean? Like even discovering the Mac and then wanting to be a part of that Mac industry community, the uh, LGBT moving online and the secret of having community online and then here, you know?
1: I think you're right um i'm conscious of that of the fact that community is uh you know perhaps a backbone for my career i would say this is going to sound awful and self-serving so i apologize but i would compare that with serving others because if you look at every company i've worked at it's about tools that help others or services that help others and um It's not particularly about something that's about, you know, just for me. It's like at the service of others. And that, I don't think I ever thought that that would be my, uh, to use it. Well, it's too gross a word. I was going to say legacy, but Mm -hmm. yuck. But if you, if you said that that would be my, um, uh, the summation of, of the summation, career. Yeah, it could be the summation of, of some of my work. It is about community, and it is about helping others. And I think you really, if you want, you can trace all of those back to the very beginning and say, I engaged in a community. Somebody helped me. Mm-hmm. It made a giant difference in my life. They helped me over the Internet. And boom. Uh, it's all, in some ways inspired by that
0: Tom Riley this has been an inspiring story (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing all that with us my pleasure if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice there's plenty more great internet history where that came from and if you're a longtime listener then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on itunes because itunes gives credit to reviews and ratings and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us as always there's more info on our website www.internethistorypodcast.com the show's twitter handle is at net and my personal twitter is at brian thanks for listening